0: Good to see all of you this morning. My name is my name's Del, one of, the, one of the pastors here. And we are continuing in our series in John uh, with the theme, Your Story is Better Than You Think. And the reason for that is that Jesus has made possible us linking our story to his in ways that transform everything. So if you've missed some of the series, it's all online for you. Uh, last week was brilliant by, by Ryan who took us through John 7. And we're going to kind of be picking up on the heels of that Um, And looking at particularly this woman that was brought before Jesus, having been caught in adultery, uh, I want you to keep in mind as we're moving through this that Jesus is God with a face. And so as we look at the face of Jesus, how he interacts with people, how he thinks about the world, the things that he teaches, we're actually getting the exact representation of the heart of God, what he's like, what he cares about. So anything that we're going to say about God has to be filtered through how he has been revealed in Jesus. Um, and anything that doesn't fit that picture actually isn't of God. Okay? And that's part of what Jesus came to teach us fundamentally um, in his life and his ministry. And so we're going to be looking at uh, this woman and the rest of her story, the rest of the story. Um, begin reading here in verse 1. Jesus returned to the Mount of Olives, but early the next morning he was back again in the temple. A crowd soon gathered, and he sat down, And he taught them. As he was speaking, the teachers of religious law and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in the act of adultery. They put her in front of the crowd and said, Teacher, this woman was caught in an act of adultery. The law of Moses says to stone her, What do you say? And they were trying to trap him into saying something that they could use against him. Now keep in mind, the drama of the scene is underscored by the fact that there had been a week of festival where people from all over the nation had gathered in Jerusalem to celebrate these holy days. Um, The end of that was what Ryan talked to us about last week, where tensions were rising between Jesus and the religious teachers, um, the crowds were arguing about who he really was, whether he was really the Messiah. Um, the religious leaders were, were very, very concerned and angry about what they considered to be a distraction and a threat to their authority. Um, in fact, things had gotten so intense, if you remember from last week in John 7, um, that they had actually sent people to arrest Jesus. Do you remember this? Um, and the crowd was so dense and sort of like unsettled about who Jesus was, that they didn't want to start a riot and actually had to had to back off. So uh, the Pharisees were very upset that this that Jesus had remained free. It's actually incredible then that we pick up this narrative that Jesus, after this super high point and near escape from arrest and violence in the temple, actually comes back. Do you find that to be incredible? Like he the next day he moves right back to the temple. Um, right to the hotbed of all this. Um, And a crowd immediately begins to gather. This is like 25 hours later. He's right back in the middle of it, okay, at the temple. And this is the context where we get the story, um, where this woman is thrown at Jesus' feet, and the Pharisees make some very, very intense uh, demands. Like, hey, this woman was caught in adultery. The law of Moses says that she should be stoned. Like, what are you going to do about this? What do you say about this? We're kind of putting this at your feet, teacher. Like, give us your answer. Now, the drama of this was was incredible because Rome was watching. Now, the temple was a hotbed historically for not only the cultural life of this people and their ideas um, that they believed fervently about them being the chosen people and the story of, of the nation of God in that, but it also was a place where Uh, people mixed and these ideas kind of sort of clashed, and it was not uncommon for insurrections and these kinds of things to get their start at the temple so so much so that while the romans as the occupying authority you know kind of allowed people to have their culture and religion they had no intention of relinquishing control and so this is what they did they built a they built a fort one of their largest forts in jerusalem right next to the temple do you see this here so the temple was in the front, and then joined by a crosswalk was the Fort Antonio, where all these Roman troops were stationed, literally not even a stone's throw away, because they had no intention of letting things get out of hand, right, at the temple. So you can see the drama of the scene, because uh, the Romans were very aware that this was a high and holy day, um, that, that people were there in mass. They had they, they no doubt had soldiers out. Patrolling this entire area up on these crosswalks, overlooking everything that was happening, they would have seen the crowd beginning to gather again around Jesus. They would have remembered the the, the confrontation of the day the day before. They would have heard the Pharisees saying um, that this woman had been caught in a in a essentially a crime to the to the, in the Jewish community, and that they were calling and demanding her death. Now. Uh, to add to this drama, the Romans allowed the, the Jewish leaders to have quite a bit of control, but they retained the right to capital punishment. This is why later you'll see when Jesus, when they wanted to put Jesus to death, they had to get the Romans in on it because only the Romans could sentence someone to death. And so do you see the dilemma that they're creating for Jesus? They've got this woman who the law of Moses says should be put to death. They've got Roman soldiers all around them watching the scene who they've forbidden uh, to exercise capital punishment. And so this was the religious leaders thinking, no doubt, was that they had a trap set, which is what the text says, because if Jesus were to say, uh, you know, no, don't put her to death, he would have been denying the commands of Moses, their highest teacher of the law. If he says, yes, put her to death, Rome would have watched him start an insurrection. So they have him. Either way, right? Um, whatever he says, he's caught either losing his credibility as a moral teacher or going against Rome right in their face. Okay, so do you feel, do you feel the drama of this? Um, it, this was much more than just a, a woman and adultery and Jesus' opinion This was high drama against the backdrop of power and political and religious uh, agitation. And also all of the anger and the angst that the Jewish people had about the fact that they were an occupied people and the resentment against Rome and all these things were coming to a head in one moment like in this chapter that we get to look at this week. Um, And so we we need to ask a couple of questions to sort of understand Jesus' response. The first question is this. It's pretty obvious. We've got a woman who has committed adultery, but we do not have a man. Okay? So one of the questions here is, where's the man? If these folks are so interested in justice and morality, why are they exercising this age-old double standard where the, where the stain of sin, sexual sin, gets assigned primarily to the woman and the man is let off the hook, okay? Uh, this was clearly preying on sexism and vulnerability of the woman to exercise a plot that was much bigger than this woman, which is the age-old story, again, of men in power, essentially. And we've got this going on in force. So Jesus has got that dynamic. Um, this is not about justice. The, the Pharisees were clearly willing in this scenario for people to get hurt to advance their agenda because there was either going to be a riot or a woman and Jesus were going to get killed, one by the crowd and one by the Romans, okay? So their interest is not in the well-being of souls here, um, and they're willing to manipulate religious and moral and, and uh, political ends to advance their own agenda, okay? So it's, it's dirty to the core. Um, it's really a bad scene. Jesus is in the middle of it now, and we're going to watch uh, Jesus respond to something that is not about the truth, ultimately. It is about turf and all kinds of things that destroy human life to this day, you know, as we know it. Um, and the first thing I want you to see about the character of God in the face of Jesus is that he cares about people. He cares about this woman. He cares about the person, not just their sin. See, the Pharisees were reducing all of this to systems and power and to morality codes. And in the middle of it, people were getting hurt. And Jesus cares about the people involved, not just the sin. And this is is the heart of God, um, that he is... As he looks at you and me, um, he said, Jesus said that he came as the great physician to save sinners, right? His heart beat for those who were broken. He saw them as lost and without a shepherd. Uh, this, this very text talks about the fact that anybody who sins is actually a slave to it, and he came to set those people free. He cares about us. He cares about a per, the person, not just the behavior. Um, and this is the first thing that we see um, in the story that informs Jesus' actions, okay? But let's, let's read a little further. Jesus stoops down as these demands are being made, and he begins to write in the dust with his finger as these accusers are continually and, and keep on demanding this verdict. Does she live or does she die? So he writes in the ground, then he stood up and he said, all right, but let the one who has never sinned throw the first stone. Now, here's a couple, couple, couple observations here. The day after one of these festivals, these holy festivals, was considered to be equivalent in the Jewish law to a Sabbath. So this was a holy day. We don't know what day of the week it was, but it was considered a holy day after one of these festivals. And Jesus knew that the law demanded that there be no work on the Sabbath. You know, you see a lot of interchanges between the Pharisees and their, and, their, and their Sabbath rules, right? And one of the Sabbath rules was that writing was considered to be breaking of the Sabbath if it was done in any permanent form. So on the Sabbath, you could write, but you had to do it in the sand, Because that way you could wipe it away and it wasn't considered to be. So Jesus is sort of tipping his hat in this moment to the crowd and to the Pharisees to say, yeah, I know the law inside and out. I even know it down to the finest nuance of all the little regulations, and I respect it. Okay? Um, And and so he, you know, that's being signaled as he writes. Now the question is, don't you want to know? Like, what did he write? I mean, we're not told in the text um, there's been a lot of speculation you know, by people who have read this. Um, I've heard all kinds of things. Um, for example, he could have, being the Son of God and knowing, you know, knowing things in the Spirit, he could have been writing the sins, the actual sins of that week or of a lifetime, of the people that were sort of standing there around the circle in the crowd um, without a name. Sort of like, it's sort of like Jeopardy. Okay, where there's high stakes because you'd be going, ooh, how, you know, that, I wonder if he's going to do the big reveal and like actually start pointing me out. So he could have just been freaking people out by reminding them, you know, of, of their sin, not just this woman's. Um, he probably actually was writing in the sand the, mo- the law of Moses does demand that she be stoned. But then he stands up, because he says, all right. So, you know, you've made your case. Now, let the person without sin cast the first stone. Now, this is a beautiful and brilliant, almost like beyond magnificent (laughs) response in the moment from Jesus. Because what this statement did Completely reframed in the mind of the crowd who was actually at fault. In this scene, clearly, the one being accused, the one being humiliated, the one being singled out in front of everyone was the woman without the man for this sexual sin. But by saying, let the person without sin throw the first stone, Jesus was doing two things. He was turning the tables. Number one, the Roman soldiers were still watching, right? And what are they watching for? Just like a parent. Who started it? Okay? So now Jesus is calling them out to the core because he's saying, okay, listen, this is about justice. This is about conviction. This is about your sense of offense. Put your life on the line for your convictions, go ahead and throw the first stone. Let Rome, let Rome hold you responsible for your conscience. Okay, so he turns the table there with the Roman soldiers. Secondly, by appealing to the conscience of all these people, he reminds them that in the kingdom of God, scapegoating is not the way. In other words, in other words, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. All need God's mercy. The, the Jewish people would have been very readily aware of this because they had to come yearly to present sacrifices at that very temple for what? Their own sins. And so it's incredible that people, do, you know, especially religious types of people, can sort of rank sin in so, such a way that it's possible to actually stand in a place where it feels justified to us to scapegoat someone else's sin and to say all of the evil and all of the worst Parts of what actually need forgiveness and need justification rest on one person. And we feel justified sometimes in our anger and our, our self righteousness. And Jesus is just reminding them in this appeal to the conscience that it's not just this woman who needs God's forgiveness. And that, that the entire crowd, including the accusers, are also guilty of sin. And he, secondly, here exposes. This incredible gospel truth that everyone needs, everyone needs God's mercy. So as we sit here this morning and as we look at the magnificence of Jesus, part of the message of the gospel to us is that, is that all have sinned. We have sinned. I have sinned. And that, that when we come to answer this question, who is it that needs mercy? Right? Who is it that needs that? It's not just people who are adulterers or who, who, who fit into the categories that culture or people sort of can identify as the bad ones, right? But that it's all of us. All of us need God's mercy. And in this reflection, caught between Rome and their own conscience, conscience these people begin to slip away one by one. It says, beginning with the eldest. You know, in, that, in this culture, the elders actually led things. And so the people began to look, and they were just like, you know, caught. They begin to, to slip away. Then Jesus stood up again. And he's down still riding in the sand. And he says to the woman, where are your accusers? Didn't even one of them condemn you? No, Lord, she said. And Jesus said, neither do I. Go and sin no more. Such a beautiful moment where Jesus as the man in this culture who had the power, the rabbi who had the power, the, the one who was sort of embodied in this culture, the one that had righteousness, righteousness, sort of face-to-face with the one who in this culture embodied all of the lowest places, who had no voice, personally addresses this woman, dignifying her even by his eye contact and his address to the fact that she was a human being who had value to God, who was more, as I said, than just her sin, and it's interesting, in this story, up to this point, this woman has had no chance to speak. Have you noticed that? She's literally been railroaded. She has been identified and defined as being synonymous with her sin. And Jesus, in one moment, sees her, right? Pulls all of that apart in such a beautiful way and with tenderness, gives this woman a chance to speak, gives this woman a chance to own her own story, her own story, not the story as, as it's been defined by everyone else. And it's notable that when this, when this woman has a chance to speak, she actually doesn't say, Lord, I didn't do it. Okay, that's notable. So she probably was guilty of something. She certainly was cognizant of her brokenness and her need for mercy. And Jesus communicates to her in this interchange that her value to God is more than her actions. Now, look up here just for one second. I want to speak to you about the narrative in your own head about your own story. Because we come from many different places over many different years, encompassing many different choices, right? Our stories have beauty to them, but they also have brokenness. They also have places of shame and regret. We have not always been true to ourselves, let alone to those who most need us. (coughs) When we pillow our head at night, we are not always proud of who we are or what we've become. And I want to ask you, what is the narrative of your own voice about your own story? Some of us, some of us are our harshest critics. We regularly say things about ourselves and to ourselves that we would never speak out loud to a neighbor. Shame and toxic shame consumes the life and heart of so many. And we identify ourselves to ourselves sometimes as our sin. So not only that we have done bad things, but we are bad. And Jesus' interaction with this woman explodes all of these ideas because God sees you not simply as the sum total of your behaviors, but as one of his creations, one of his children, a soul To, which, to whom he loves so much that he is willing to come himself to reclaim your story. The second question is this. What is the narrative in your own head about who you think God is and how he sees you and what he wants and what he cares about? See, this story explodes so many of the voices that we think are God's, but they're not. Because the beautiful thing here is that Jesus, while he does not condone her sin because he knows it's destructive power, he wants the best for her, to love her is to want more than right, her sin. He does not condemn her the sinner, who he himself said that he came to save. He said, my mission in life actually is to seek and to save the lost. And so what we see here in the face of Jesus, something beautiful about the heart of God. And so when the accusers heard this, they had slipped away as we've already read and from the oldest to the youngest and Jesus was left. Now here's the thing I want you to note here in conclusion. Powerful men and women committed to themselves and their own agenda, willing to sacrifice, to humiliate, to to mercilessly treat a woman like this to put the entire crowd at risk, like willing for people to be killed, and the commitment to their own agenda. Let me tell you one thing about these kind of people in every era of history. They do not like to be publicly humiliated. Let me tell you that. And part of what Jesus was doing publicly in this interaction was that in, his, in the process of saving this woman, standing up for her as a person, and for her story, is that he was undoubtedly enraging a whole lot of people who he knew were capable of murder and of mayhem, and who, in fact, would be back. Okay, So these men came back. You read the rest of John, they came back with vengeance, they came back with fury. They eventually nailed Jesus to a cross. Jesus knew that the cost of saving this woman and all of us was going to fall somewhere. And his love is this. But in this interaction with the woman, he begins to embody the gospel itself by transferring the cost of this woman's sin from the woman to himself. He begins it early by transferring the public humiliation and the shame that had to be so incredible from this woman to the crowd, right? So that they begin to share it equally. But he did it even more explicitly by by enraging these leaders who he knew would eventually put him to death. This was an act of sacrificial love. It foreshadowed the embodiment of what he would do for the world on the cross when the cost of salvation, the cost of sin, while it is free and a gift of grace from God, is not without cost. And the full cost of this kind of love and this kind of pardon had to fall on someone. And so Jesus said, let it be me. Let it be me. And the full weight of it would fall on him. This is the Christian teaching of the atonement. That forgiveness and redemption comes free to anyone who asks from God in the work and through the work of Jesus. But it certainly does not come without cost. It comes at the cost of the Son of God who freely gives himself as a sacrifice for sins. And this is, this is the message freely offered, not only to adulterous women and men, but to all who will believe in Jesus. Now, we're left at the end of the story with a pretty big question. Because Jesus tells this woman, go and sin no more. But the question is, what happened to her? Well, we're not told. Did the beautiful, personal, sac- self-sacrificing love of God in Jesus sink so deeply into this woman's life and heart that she began to reimagine her own story? Did she leave to go on to a life of dignity and beauty? And of good news? We don't know. Did she return to her former way of life? To sin and shame and degradation? We don't know. And by not telling us the end of the story, the gospel writer is inviting us to use our own imagination to think deeply about the costly love of God in Christ, to ask ourselves the question of how we would respond, to put ourselves in the story. And so we are left to go from this place with this incredible reset of mind about who God is, what he wants, what he offers, what he's like, to, to answer the question for ourselves what will be the rest of our story? And so I ask you how will we, how will you respond to the self sacrificial love of the one true God? Let's pray. Lord, every week we come to the feet of Jesus and we find yet again that the story actually is better than we can imagine. Thank you for the beautiful, magnificent, resurrected life of Jesus Christ. May we receive deeply this incredible love of God. And may it rewrite our stories. Amen. You're dismissed.